Our two scripture readings this morning come from Exodus 14, and then for the New Testament reading will be Revelation chapter 20. I invite you to you can turn there in your Bible or follow along here as I read. Exodus 14 is uh, the defeat of the Egyptian army. And there's a lot of correspondence there with what we're going to find in Revelation chapter 20. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-herath between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Herioth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes And behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried to the Lord, cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I will indeed harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So it came came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while, all, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Now the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 20. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. Our text will continue at verse 7 through the end of the chapter. The Apostle John says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or His image, and had not received His mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is He who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. And our text this morning begins at verse 7. Now when, a thou- when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. 
and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, there is mystery here, but there is revelation. There is great distress, but also great comfort. And so, Lord, we thank You for the blessings and the warnings of Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that You would speak to us this morning by Your Spirit, through Your Word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved people of God, one of the things that I've uh, really enjoyed in this study of the book of Revelation is reading other portions of Scripture, especially some of the passages in the Old Testament that kind of give us a, a glimpse of what's found in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. You know, I brought this out before and introduced sermons with those passages, and I, and I want to do that again this morning. Uh, I read... Exodus 14, earlier, for that very reason. It's the final judgment of God upon the Egyptians, upon the enemies of God's people after the ten plagues. As I read this in my study, the first thing that really struck me was not that you, what really struck me was that there was not one of the enemies of God's people that survived. That the whole army, we're told, every single one of them, including Pharaoh, would die under the judgment of God. And this made me think of our text here in the last part of Revelation 20 as the Lord brings about the final battle and the final judgment. That no one escapes the wrath of God, the just judgment of God for their sin and their rebellion. Not the dragon, not the beast, not the false prophet, not the harlot Babylon, and not those who follow them, who have the mark of the beast. And that's a very sobering thought in many ways. I mean, when you think about it, not only will there be none missing in the kingdom of God, all those whom God has chosen in Christ, all those whom Christ died for, whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated, they will all be in the kingdom of God and not one will be missing. But by the same token, not one of the guilty will escape the judgment of God. As God Himself says in Exodus 34-7, He's the God who does what? He, he keeps mercy with thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. No one is going to slip into heaven unnoticed. It's only those who are in Christ who will be there. And the rest will not be there. And they never will be. But then another thought came to mind as I was considering the children of Israel in Exodus and the children of God in Revelation. What did they do? Well, maybe there was some praying, but many of the children of Israel were murmuring, right? Something we're prone to today as well. But that's not what I was thinking about either. What did the people of God do in response to being surrounded by their great and terrible enemy with no way out? What did they do? They did absolutely nothing. That is, they did nothing except watch and obey. They watched the salvation of God and they obeyed His Word to them. Did, did they have to defend themselves? No. 
Did they have to take up the arm of flesh to protect themselves? No. What did Moses say, even as the people complained against him and against his leadership? I want to read those words again from Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Moses says here. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now, this is really a reoccurring theme in the Scriptures when it comes to the salvation of sinners. Because the message of the Gospel is not do this or do that. The message of the Gospel is it is done. It's finished. And so much like David says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, our God will not only bring about the salvation of His people through the glorious and gracious work of His beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, but He promises that He will watch over His people, that He will protect His people, He will destroy all of their enemies, and He will bring His people, He will bring you into the glorious kingdom of His Son. That's His promise. And that's what we see in our text this morning. The dragon is released. The nations are deceived once again. And they gather together to put an end to the people of God. To bring an end to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? God comes to the rescue of His people once again. Just like He always has. Just like He always does. In fact, in, in Exodus 15, where you have the song of Moses that they sing after the destruction of the Egyptian army, verse 5 says... The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Does does that remind you of anything that we might have seen recently in the judgment of God on the wicked in, in Revelation? Remember chapter 18, verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. I think you've noticed here again and again how how the visions repeat what's already been said and how each vision just goes a little bit further and further as to what's being revealed to us. And so we see once again that the whole world is going to unite against the people of God. But it's not the end of the church that comes. It's the end of the dragon and all who follow him. And that all comes about because of the sovereign will, the sovereign plan of our God. And so my theme this morning will be that God brings the rebellion of the dragon, all who follow Him to an end. The the focus here is on the dragon. We've seen the focus on, on different enemies of God, but the focus here in chapter 20 is on the dragon. And so we will look at the final battle in verses 7 through 9, and then the final judgment in verses 10 through 15. So as we saw last time, The thousand years here is a symbolic number. Ten times ten times ten. Uh, It's a number that speaks of an indefinite number of years which began with the first coming of Christ and it will end with His second coming. 
if we were to be maybe more specific here, we might say, well, it really began with the ascension of Christ into heaven as all authority is given to Him and as He begins to build His church under the leadership of the apostles by the authority of His Word and the power of His Spirit which He pours out upon this world in the Gospel age. And you, that all begins in Acts. You see that. And it's continued on since then. But let me read verses 7 and 8 again uh, of our text. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So when the thousand years are finished, when the gospel age is coming to an end, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit for a little while, for a short time. Remember again, this is a vision. We have a chain, we have a pit that speaks of Satan being bound. uh, And Christ has accomplished that. He has bound Satan with his first coming. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, by his present reign in heaven. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And when this happens, when we come to the end of the age, we're told the dragon is released. And he once more deceives the nations. Just as he did before the coming of Christ, the first coming. Uh, And this will be the beginning probably of the most terrible persecution the church has ever known. Because all of the anti-Christian forces of this world will unite against the people of God to destroy them, to get rid of them. You know, up to this time, uh, persecution has pretty much been fragmented, going on here and there, even in many places at the same time, but it's never been a united effort by the world against God's people. But that's all going to change at the end of the age. As I've said before, if, if you think it's been bad up to this point, you haven't seen anything yet. The persecution is listed as coming from Gog and Magog. Uh, This is a a phrase that comes from the book of Ezekiel. It's symbolic. It's not really speaking of a particular place on earth or a particular ethnic people. It's referring to a particularly terrible time for the people of God back in the days when Antioch Epiphanes was such a scourge to the people of God in Israel. Antioch Epiphanes did everything he could to try to destroy all the people of God in Israel, even slaughtering a pig on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem. And this wicked one in the Old Testament is a type of the man of sin still yet to come. In fact, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is described in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Listen to what it says about him. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. And then you have these words about the man of sin. He was described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul clarifies to the church there his, his teaching about the end that is coming, because they're getting all mixed up. They're getting everything uh, convoluted there. And he says in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, "...let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition." who exposes and 
excuse me, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that sounds just like Antioch Epiphanes. Uh, and what will be the end of this wicked man of sin who is to come? Uh, Paul goes on in verses 7 and 8 to explain what's coming. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. You know, the Apostle John says the, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. He, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That when the Lord returns, all those who oppose him will be destroyed never to rise again. Now, let me go back to Gog and Magog again, and particularly that period of history when Antioch Epiphanes was trying to destroy the people of God. And what we see here is that the book of Revelation is really using that picture, that time of affliction and woe upon the people of God. The the writer is using that as a symbol of the final attack of Satan and his hordes on the church. And there's good reason to do so. There's a lot of similarities that we should notice here. First of all, the attack of Antiochus, Gog and Magog, on the Holy Land was actually the last great oppression which came upon the people of God that they had to endure in the last part of the Old Testament. And so therefore, it makes an appropriate symbol for the final attack of the anti-Christian forces on the church at the end of the age. Second, uh, the armies of Antiochus were almost beyond measure. Okay? Every time he was defeated, he came back with an even bigger army. But the size of his army makes the, uh, a really kind of an adequate symbol here for the worldwide oppression that's going to come upon the church in the days just before Christ's second coming. And then third, we should also realize that the pers- this period of persecution of God's people under Antiochus, it was actually a very short time, very brief. And so again, it makes a good foreshadowing of the brief duration of the final tribulation of the church, which will occur at the end of this age we're living in. Um, and then fourth and last here, the, the last similarity we see is that the defeat of the armies of Gog and Magog the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes' armies was not only an unexpected victory for the people of God, but it was a complete victory. That it was so complete that it could only be seen as the work of God for His people. They should have been destroyed, but they weren't. And that's kind of a reoccurring theme, isn't it, in in the Bible? And so this again, it makes an excellent sign, an excellent symbol of the final struggle of this godless world against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's judgment in the past, we should realize this, when God brings judgment in the past to bear upon those who are in this world, that gives us comfort in the present and comfort for the future as well. Uh, it's really, as David says in Psalm 119.52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. So we rest in that. The God who has destroyed wickedness in the past will restore, destroy it at the end. Now, people of God, the, the Word of God doesn't really give us any evidence that would point us to a particular nation or to a, a particular group of nations that, that represent Gog and Magog. 
I know that I've lived long enough to hear many times, not only that, you know, that this is happening and events that are going on in the world, that we need to be careful here, this is happening right now, but it was also very common to hear that uh, this represented specific nations that were trying to take over the Middle East. Uh, they would try to go to that. And I can understand why various attempts have been made to do this. That is to preach through these sections of the Scriptures kind of using current events rather than the Word of God itself. And there is a sense in which those who do so are right. I'm just checking to see if you're listening here, paying attention. There is a sense in which they are right. Because every time there's an attack upon God's people in the world, it is a sign of that which is to come at the end. When we hear of churches being burned and Christians being martyred in Nigeria or China or Malaysia or wherever, it is a symbol. It's a sign of what's coming at the end. But it's not going to be on such a small scale. It will be on a worldwide scale, a global scale. And what we need to realize is that this is all a part of God's plan. That we don't need to lose hope. We don't need to lose our joy in the Lord. We don't need to lose our zeal for the Gospel because of what's happening around us. Because what will be the result when this finally does come to pass? Verse 9, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Just like God did at the Red Sea, the people of God will be saved by God Himself. Our Savior shall come and destroy them all. And so in the words of Moses, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you. Beloved, the the life that we are called to is is to be a life of faith. We don't live by sight. It's not a life where we are pursuing the things of this world like the world around us, the temporal blessings that, that are found here in paradise lost. Because that's what this is. You and I are called to set our hearts on things above where Christ is. We're called to look to Him and to wait for His coming expectantly. Not letting our hearts be troubled. Not looking back like Lot's wife. Not loving this world that is passing away. We are living now in the age when the Gospel message is going forth. That's our mission here. That's what we're supposed to be about. But is that what our lives say about us? Is that that the desire of our hearts? Is that how we're raising our children? Is that what we want to see in our grandchildren? I I think it's easy in this life that we have here in America to think, well, you know, this isn't really going to happen, right? But it seems to be getting clearer and clearer that such things not only could happen, but they're beginning to happen. But listen to how the Apostle Paul tells us how you and I are supposed to live in this world today in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-6. through Listen to what he says if you're a Christian. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And here it comes. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. 
Therefore, Paul's always good at that, right? Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Our mindset is not just that we are longing to go to heaven when we die. It is to realize that this world that we're living in is not our home. Because we are looking for something better, far better, which Christ has promised us. And which He will bring to reality when He comes in great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And He is coming. He is coming. Now, most commentators in their outlines put verse 10 of our text with verses that we just went over. Uh, and there's good reason to do this. Uh, but I'm putting it with the, the verses that follow because it speaks of the final judgment of the dragon. So I'm going to lump him in with the judgment of all mankind, small and great, that comes at the end of chapter 20. So, so let's look at the judgment of the dragon first and let's see how his rebellion against our God ends. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Christ comes. It's the end. And the army of the dragon goes down in defeat. But what happens to the enemy, the enemy of God's people? The dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. That short time that he'd been given at the end of the age, it comes to an abrupt and a final end. He had deceived the wicked of this world into thinking that there was a victory that could be achieved over the church of Jesus Christ, that that was possible, and, and the, that they could defeat the true and living God somehow. But it was not to be. In fact, it could not be. And so the deceiver is cast into the lake of fire. This is the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. It is the place of suffering of body and soul after the judgment day. The place that endures forever and ever. It's the place that Jesus described as where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But we're also told it's the place where the beast and the false prophet are. And we should not let the language here kind of confuse us as if, well, the beast and the false prophet were actually cast into the lake of fire earlier uh, in the you know, previous chapter, so that happened earlier. What this is really referring to is what's already been written in the last chapter where the vision centered on the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. If you remember back in chapter 19, verse 20, it says these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And again, you remember, the, the visions cover the same ground, but each time it has a different perspective. And so the perspective here, the reality here, is that really all three go down together. That God brings His perfect and just judgment on the dragon and on the beast and on the false prophet. And, and we know that to be true because the beast is Satan's persecuting power. And the false prophet is Satan's anti-Christian religion. And wherever Satan is, there you find the other two as well. And so this unholy trinity is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where all three are tormented forever and ever. They are all brought to their final end. 
But it's not just the dragon who was judged in chapter 20. What we see here is that all mankind are brought to uh, the judgment throne as well. Notice how this seventh vision, the, the last vision that's given to the Apostle John, notice how uh, it really kind of goes through all the age of the church here quickly, but it gives us much more about the judgment to come in chapter 20. And then this will be followed by further revelation of the glories of heaven and the eternal state, what those will be like in chapters 21 and 22. So this last vision goes even further. But it's pretty quick about uh, the, the first covering that first part. So uh, for now, let's just focus our attention on the final judgment. Let me read verses 11-13 through 13 again. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. So here we have the coming of Christ uh, in judgment vividly described for us. John sees this great white throne, right? And that's why this is often called the great white throne judgment. Uh, and upon this throne is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not explicitly identified here, but we know this is true from the analogy of faith. That is the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we saw this back in chapter 14 where it says, the Son of Man reaps the earth with His sickle and the earth is reaped. In other words, the world is judged by this One. Uh, and we have the words of Christ Himself in Matthew 25.31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And so it is this Christ judging the world. Now when it says that the earth and the heaven fled away from His face, it's not speaking here of the destruction or the annihilation of the earth and heaven. It's really the, the renovation of the whole universe. The new heaven and the new earth that we're going to meet in the, in the next chapter. And this too is spoken of in other places in the Scriptures. The, the reality that you and I are living in here today is going to be changed. That the creation is going to be recreated, renewed, regenerated. I want to give you some of those promises from God's Word that, that speak of this. From Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10-13, through we read of the, this end time being like a melting with great heat. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And then Peter applies this to us because this is what's going to happen. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for? and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What kind of people are we supposed to be? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise that God has given us. In Matthew 19, verse 28, the new creation is spoken of as a regeneration. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the 
regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in Acts uh, chapter 3, verses 19-21, through 21, uh, Peter, as he preaches at Pentecost, refers to the interval of time when Christ is in heaven reigning. And then he speaks of the end when Christ returns. And he calls that the restoration of all things. Acts 3, verses 19-21, through 21, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come. What are the times of refreshing? It's the present time, the present gospel age, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord when the gospel is going forth, and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. That's the age to come, which God has spoken of by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. And then just one more that you know from Romans chapter 8, verses 19-21. through 21. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. When's that going to happen? At the end of the age. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And so no longer, at the end of the age, no longer will this universe be subjected to the vanity of sin and death, but it too will enter into the glorious renewal of all things. So John looks upon this scene, this vision, and he sees the dead, small and great, all who've ever lived on the earth, standing before God at the throne of judgment. And what happens? We're told that the books were open, and the records of every person were consulted. This is actually predicted back in, in, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 9 and 10. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A, thou, a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then it ends with this. The court was seated and the books were open. But there's another book, isn't there, that's consulted as well. The book of life. And the dead are judged according to what is written in the books, we're told. And if you remember, Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in, his, in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. So this is the general resurrection. The resurrection of the body for all of mankind. Remember, the first resurrection is that spiritual resurrection of the elect to faith in Christ. And we're told more than once in Revelation that the second death has no power over them. That was said to one of the churches as well as just previously here. Uh, and, and Jesus says in uh, Matthew 25, verse 46, about the final judgment after the general resurrection, and these will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into eternal life. So there's going to be this great division of the people at the final judgment. And so the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, comes to an end with the chilling words of warning that we find in verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Notice that death, the separation of the soul from from the body. And Hades, that state of separation for the souls of the wicked when they die in this age, those come to an end. They're, They're thrown into the lake of fire. Because that time has passed. In the new heavens and the new earth, even in the lake of fire, there will be no more separation of body and soul. Only eternal life or eternal death. And this all comes to an end after Christ's second coming uh, for judgment. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, beloved, the first chapter of the seventh vision, the seventh and last vision here at the book of the Revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us kind of a quick summary of the age in which you and I are now living in and how it ends. And those who are in Christ, as those whose names have been written down in the Lamb's book of life from all eternity, we know that we shall reign with Him when we die. And when we die, we will depart and be with Christ, which is far better But that's not the end of the story. There's more to come. There will be a final judgment of all the world, of all who've ever lived. And all will stand before God and give an account of their lives. And by their works, we're told, they will be judged. And I think we need to notice this carefully because it's repeated here. We're not saved by our works. We know that, right? We know that to be true from the rest of Scripture. But I think sometimes we have this idea that when we come to the judgment throne, we're going to be judged by our belief. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in God? Is that what's going to be asked of us? The Bible says that the demons themselves believe in Jesus. They believe in God. They're orthodox in their belief on who Jesus really is. They know who He is. And every time they came into His presence, they confessed who He is. But we need to remember what it says in James 2 about faith and false faith. James 2, verses 17-19, through 19, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then there's verse 19. You believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe. And tremble. So my point is that the reason why all mankind can be judged by their works is because if we have a true and saving faith, it will show itself in our works, in how we live, because of the transforming grace of God in our lives. We are not saved by our works. We are saved to do good works. And that's really how one of the greatest statements in the Scriptures about being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that's how it ends. You know the Scriptures, Ephesians 2, 8-10, through For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's no boasting before God of our salvation. But verse 10 is right there. For we are His workmanship. God has regenerated us. We are regenerated by God for God. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So those who are in Christ, 
are different than those who are not. And faith is not merely an assent to some facts from the Bible. Faith is a life-changing transformation as God takes out of your, your, your very soul a heart of stone and He gives you this heart of flesh, a living heart, a heart that loves Him and desires to serve Him and desires to worship Him. And so the question this morning for us all is, does your heart belong to Christ? Is your heart alive to Him? And does your life show that you belong to Christ? Because that's what it means to be in the book of life. Yes, you've been chosen. Yes, it's been written down from all eternity. But the work of God in you will show itself in your life. And remember this. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And all God's people said, Amen.